Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised. But it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. This is Invisible Tears. Welcome to Invisible Tears. I'm Jane, host of Invisible Tears. I'm here with my co-host, Amanda. And we are also here today with Julie Murray, Maura Maury's sister. She's going to talk about Maura's case. Uh, Maura went missing quite a few years ago. So welcome, Julie. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that we recently connected with each other. And it was so great to have you both at the 19th anniversary vigil for Maura. And it was great to meet you in person. I know we had several different chats before that. I was so honored to have you both there. So I can't thank you enough. And I'm just glad to be on Invisible Tears with you today. Oh, thank you. Me and Amanda felt so honored to be invited to the vigil for Maura. You guys did a great job honoring her that day. Why don't we get into her story? Yeah. So a little bit about myself, Mara, our family. Mara was two and a half years younger than me. We grew up on the South Shore of Massachusetts. And we lived in a, a split ranch home and, you know, at the end of a dead end street. And so there wasn't really a whole lot to do. So we picked up sports very early on and hiking up in the White Mountains was what we did since we were in diapers. And that's kind of how we grew up, just outdoors and camping and hiking and running. And it was a great way to grow up. We knew early on that Mara was really smart. She was so quick with clever comebacks and, you know, her being the youngest of four other older siblings, you know, she had to fend for herself and, and she definitely did that. Mara was the youngest and we had my brother, Freddie, my older sister, Kathleen, myself, and then Mara came and there was typical sibling rivalry, but it was always in good fun. You know, she was just really funny 
And the one thing I miss most about Maura is the smack talk. She was a masterful smack talker. And, you know, I don't know if it's a New England thing or what, but that is definitely, you know, something that I miss most about her. She was quick with her comebacks. Yes, very quick. And and she had to be because, you know, she had all these older siblings. It was just a, a lot of fun. And, you know, we spent so much time together. You know, she was a standout athlete. She could pick up any sport and just amazing at what she could do athletically. Your dad got you guys into a lot of sports growing up. Right. And like I said, I mean, there was nothing really else to do where we grew up. So you either play sports or do your schoolwork. And that's exactly what we did. There wasn't a whole lot of space to get into any kind of trouble because the town we grew up in, it only had one stoplight, one Dunkin' Donuts. So, you know, we were out playing sports or doing our schoolwork. And, you know, like I said, it was a great way to grow up. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, did you see her or hang out with her or uh, talk to her a lot when she started college down in Amherst? Yes. I mean, Mara and I, so you have to remember this was back in 2003, 2004. So it was before social media. It was before text messaging and all that. So we would communicate on instant messenger versus calling each other on the phone because when Mara first started at UMass, she didn't have a cell phone. So that was our our primary way was either email or AOL instant messenger. And that's how we kept in contact. But yeah, I mean, we were constantly communicating. And another thing about Mara is she would always write notes. So snail mail notes, you know, just for whatever, for no reason at all. And uh, that is definitely something that was a trademark for her because everyone that came in contact with Mara probably got a note of some sort throughout their relationship with her. Oh, I wish I knew her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she didn't have any enemies. You know, if you knew her, you would understand that she was kind, she was humble, despite how talented she was. So, you know, she's a star athlete but very, very humble, would give you the shirt off her back. I mean, just that type of person. That speaks a lot to the type of person that she was. Right. Yeah. So smart, so talented, but yet so humble. It speaks a lot to our upbringing too and your family. Yes. Yeah. I would say I was a little bit more um, serious and that's how people describe us as me being more serious and focused. And of course, Mara was focused uh, and serious when she needed to be, but she was definitely the jokester of the family. And I think that was for survival because, you know, when you've got these older siblings, you got to hold your own or you're going to get trampled. You're going to get run over. And if you talk to my brothers, they say the same thing. You know, you can't make a jab at Mara without having tough enough skin to receive it back because she would give it back for sure. You know, we were so close in age and we were actively involved in sports. So naturally there was that competitiveness between us, but we were also each other's number one fans. So I always wanted to see Mara do well. And we ran different events. So she ran the two mile and I ran the one mile. So we were able to support each other, you know, in that way way and and not get my ego hurt (laughs) because my little sister beat me, which she could beat me, but thankfully we ran different events. So then 
Let's talk about a little bit about the events before she went missing. She had just started at Amherst or she had been there for a while. Out of high school, I went to West Point and I was two years into West Point or two years ahead of Mara. And when Mara came time to select a college, she got recruiting letters from Harvard, Brown, Yale, top schools, but it was West Point all the way. So she was committed to going to school with me. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was class of 2002 and she got accepted to class of 2004 at West Point. It's pretty hard to get into West Point, isn't it? It's very difficult to get in. Um, and she got in no problem. Now, was that for her academics or for the sport? Um, well, it's a combination of both. You have to have top grades and you also have to meet physical demands. So she have to pass certain tests. I've heard it's extremely hard to get into West Point. So that's super impressive that you both get in no problem. Yeah. So she gets in and schoolwork was no problem for her and the physical, the physicality part, no problem. So then there's the military aspect of West Point. And that is something that she didn't really take to. So, you know, I had been building it up, building it up for the two years that I was there saying, you're going to love this. It's going to be so great. You're going to do so well. And she gets there and she doesn't love it. So of course, there's that element of me thinking, maybe I shouldn't have spoken so highly of it. And maybe she would have went to Yale, went to Harvard somewhere else and been happy. So there's always that sense of blaming yourself for all of the events leading up to her disappearance. But that's definitely something that, you know, I regret. And I have to jump been here. I used to blame myself for my attack. You know, if I didn't stop at that store, I was so close to home, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And that's the same with you. You didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow. So I get the guilt, the survivor guilt, they call it. But yeah, you didn't know any more than I knew what was going to happen to me. Yeah. And there's no way that you could predict that something like that in either case, there's absolutely nothing that can prepare you for it. And And there's no way that you can predict that a horrible tragedy like that is going to happen. So at West Point, you have two years to decide whether you want to stay or not. And that gives cadets a chance to figure out, is this lifestyle for me? And a lot of cadets decide no, you know, I don't want to commit to eight years of military service when I'm not even enjoying, you know, this cadet time. And it's built that way so that you don't have commissioned officers in the army who don't want to be there. So once that two-year mark hits, you sign an oath and that commits you to five years active duty service and then three years individual ready reserve. So that's eight years. of military service that you need to decide as a 20, 21 year old, you know, do I want this for my life? That's a huge commitment, especially at that age. I mean, you can't even think till next week, next month. And here you are going to raise your hand and say, sign me up for eight years of military service. And oh, by the way, right before Mara had to make that decision, 9-11 happened. So when Mara and I entered West Point, 9-11 wasn't on the radar. You know, we had no idea. It didn't even occur to us that we might actually go to war. And of course, at that time, I had already signed up for, you know, I had committed. I took that oath after the second year. So I was locked in. And I think that informed Mara's decision coupled with, hey, I don't 
I'm not really feeling this military thing, you know? And so during her second year, she got into some trouble. She uh, was caught taking $5 worth of makeup from a training base. And so she was having to go through that disciplinary process. So you have that, you have her not really happy. And then you have, I'm about to sign up to essentially deploy to Iraq immediately upon graduation. So those factors definitely informed her decision to leave. So Mara left West Point after a year and a half before that oath of military service took place. And her punishment hadn't been decided for her $5 worth of makeup incident, but she probably would have gotten what we call hours at West Point, whereas you march back and forth for literally hours with your most uncomfortable uniform and you're holding your rifle. And so that's another element to the whole thing. I mean, at West Point, the scarcest resources time. And so if you do get into trouble, the punishment is we're going to zap all of your free time and you're going to march back and forth in this ridiculous uniform from the 1800s with a rifle. You know, and so now you literally have no no time or no control over yourself. And again, that's another factor that informed her decision to leave. So that was a long winded way to just say she decided to leave West Point and then she went to UMass. And so she got accepted to the very competitive nursing program at UMass. Our mother was a nurse. And so Mara was following along in her footsteps. So she goes to UMass, seems very happy. You know, she didn't have all of the strict rules and structures at West Point anymore. And she seemed like she was thriving. She was doing really well. She was on the dean's list at UMass. So we thought, hey, things are looking up. You know, she seemed a lot happier. I was stationed over in South Korea for the entire year of 2003. So I wasn't around. I would call her. We would do instant messenger. She'd write me letters like I talked about. But from what I gathered, she seemed much much happier at UMass. So I come home for that Christmas, Christmas 2003, after being away a full year. And we had a great visit, a great Christmas. Mara seemed like she was thriving. And so fast forward a month later is when she disappeared. And so when I say no one saw it coming, nobody saw this coming. Yeah, that's rough. I'm so sorry. I'm so thankful that you're on and you can help get the facts out about the day that Maura disappeared. It, just because her story has been so covered and there's been so much information out there, I love that we can get the information right from you. So do you want to walk us through the events of the day that uh, she disappeared, Julie? Yes. So Monday, February 9th, it was pretty cold that day all over New England. Early, early in the morning, Morning at 3.32 a.m. on the day that my sister disappeared, she submitted her nursing school homework assignment, which was to look up maternity terms. So she had to define terms like Braxton Hicks and epidural anesthesia, things like that. So she submits her homework at 3.32 a.m., And then the next thing she does is she does some searches for directions to both Burlington and Bartlett, New Hampshire. So those are very different locations. 
Yeah. As you know, it's about a two, two and a half hour drive between those two points. So it was it was very random. It wasn't like she was looking at places in just Burlington. It was kind of just her web was cast pretty wide. She wrapped that up about 4 a.m. And I know a lot of people are thinking that's kind of late you know, to, to be doing your homework and to be searching on the internet. But I will say that Mara was a night owl. So it wasn't abnormal for her to be up that late. And again, she was 21 years old, college student. So you you have weird hours. To me, it sounds normal for a college student. Yeah. I remember pulling all-nighters all the time at that age and even younger when I was in college quite often, but at least a couple of days on the weekend or towards the end of the week, I was pulling all-nighters doing that exact same thing, you know, especially because of my work schedule. So it doesn't seem abnormal to me. I would have done the same thing probably. Yeah. And your body yeah. can do amazing things at that age. You know, I haven't seen 1 a.m., 2 a.m. in years because, you know, my body just can't do that. But back then as a 21-year-old, you can do that type of thing. So she wraps up her computer work about 4 a.m. and then presumably gets some sleep. And then in the afternoon of the day she disappeared, she does some more computer searches and she's searching different directions again. But she also makes a call to a condo owner in Bartlett, New Hampshire. And this condo was a place that my family had stayed at in the past. And like I said, growing up, you know, we were all over the White Mountains, hiking, climbing. And Bartlett was kind of the center point of all of our excursions and adventures growing up. So although we hadn't stayed in that particular condo, we had stayed in that complex before. So she makes a call and is inquiring about about reservations, but she doesn't book a reservation. Then the next thing she does is she calls one of her nursing student, fellow nursing students, because she had borrowed some clothes. And she said, hey, I want to return these clothes. And her classmate said, you know, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Just return them whenever. And Mara said, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to return them. And then Mara emails her professors and she tells them that there was a death in the family. There was no death in the family. So now you can kind of see what's happening based on these actions. It seems like she's making some sort of hasty plan to go up north for some reason, but she doesn't tell anybody. So while she's doing these things the afternoon of the day she disappeared, she also calls her boyfriend. His name was Bill. He was my West Point classmate. He was stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma as a second lieutenant at the time. So they have a number of calls, missed calls, but they never speak that afternoon that my sister disappeared. And then my sister emails him and says, hey, I got your messages. I don't feel like talking to anyone. I'll call you later. Love you, Mara. So I think that kind of put his mind at ease a little bit because he had received that email. So then Mara goes to a ATM and she withdraws $280, leaving just shy of $20 in her bank account. And then she goes to her liquor store. And at the liquor store, she buys roughly $40 worth of alcohol. And what's interesting is she also returned 79 cans to redeem $3.95, which is kind of an odd thing. Because if you think about 79 cans, that's that's a big amount, you know, to go through all that effort. Yeah. So there are several data points throughout this day that lead me to believe that 
Mars' plan wasn't to disappear. Mars' plan was to go to the North Country for however long, a couple of days, and then come back. Because who submits their homework assignment at 3.32 in the morning? Who returns yeah. cans? You know, it just, right. it doesn't add up. It just sounds like, you know, maybe something happened and she just needed to get away. Especially with the search that you were talking about too, you know, there was Burlington and then, and then there was Bartlett. You know what I mean? Obviously, Bartlett being the place that's more familiar probably to you guys because of the time that you spent in the White Mountains. I mean, Burlington is way over by Lake Champlain in Vermont and then Bartlett's, you know, way over in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. But yeah, it just sounds like the events that you're explaining really just sounds like somebody who just need to get away for a few days, you know? We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. Yeah. And one thing I forgot to mention was right before she called the condo owner in Bartlett, she also called 1-800-GO-STOW. And of course, you know, Stowe is a ski resort up there, but in Burlington. Um, so even the afternoon of the disappearance, she's all over the place. She's looking at go Stowe. She's calling a condo in Bartlett. So I feel that she was just trying to, like you said, get away for a few days, but she didn't have any reservations. So, she, you know, she didn't book the condo and she couldn't get a reservation through the 1-800-GO-STOW because it was just an information line. So it was giving data like the ski conditions and things like that. So it wasn't a call that would allow you to make a reservation. So she goes to the liquor store. She redeems the cans. She does return the clothes to her classmate. She knocks on her classmate's door. Her classmate was sleeping. So Mara just put the bag of clothes outside of her door. This is probably around four o'clock at this time. Then she gets into her 1996 black Saturn sedan that was running on three cylinders. A couple weeks prior, my sister drove down to Connecticut to visit my dad in the Saturn. And while she was driving down to Connecticut, the Saturn started to smoke and it was black smoke and it was chugging. And so she gets to Connecticut and she tells my dad something's wrong with the Saturn. So the next day they go and get it checked out from a mechanic down there in Connecticut. He diagnosed it as a blown cylinder, but it didn't make sense and he wouldn't be able to fix it in, in that short amount of time. So what happens is... My dad gets in the Saturn that's smoking. He drives it back to UMass. Mara follows him in his new car because my dad was so adamant that he did not want Mara driving that car because it was unsafe that he went that extra mile and, and drove it. He put it in the student parking lot and he told her, do not drive this car. It is not safe. Do not drive this car. So here we have Mara on February 9th, the day she disappears, getting into this unsafe car heading north when she knows that, you know, this is not a smart idea. And as I said before, Mara was very intelligent. So it's a troubling data point and it's hard to reconcile because why would she take that risk? You know, I don't know. But anyway, she checks her voicemail at 437 and that's the last known cell activity ever for her. And then the next timestamp we have is at 727 up in Haverhill, New Hampshire, a neighbor named Faith Westman hears a loud thud outside her window. She goes and looks out the window and she sees a dark sedan off the side of the road in the eastbound lane facing westbound. So the car had turned around. Mrs. Westman calls 911. In her 911 call, she states she sees a man smoking a cigarette. And so hang on to that point for a second. We'll get back 
to that. So while she's doing that, her neighbor, a local bus driver named Butch Atwood, he's returning home from dropping students off at a ski trip. So he passes by and he stops at the vehicle and he speaks to a young woman. And we have to assume it was Mara because it was her car. And... The driver says, you know, she's okay. She's called AAA roadside assistance and she doesn't need any help. But Butch Atwood knows that's not true because there's no cell phone service even today in that area. So he says, okay, well, I'm going to go call the police. And so he drives the short distance east down the road to his house. He makes a second 911 call at 742. Um, And then four minutes later at 746, the first Haverhill police officer arrives and gets to the Saturn. It's locked and abandoned and Mara is nowhere to be found. No footprints in the snow, just nothing. And she she just vanished. I can remember when that happened. I can tell you exactly where I was, exactly what I was doing. That next morning, they had put that on the news. The news station was there on the scene, had pictures of the car and um, said that she she was missing. And that was the first time I heard about it. And uh, for some reason, I just felt something was off with the whole thing. Because they even interviewed the bus driver, too. And I just felt something was off with that. But that's when I started following her story from then on. So, I mean, there's so much to unpack with all of it. You know, we don't know why she went there in the first place. One thing that I didn't mention was that she got into an accident the Saturday before she was leaving a dorm party at UMass in my dad's new car because she wasn't supposed to drive the Saturn. And my dad was up there to help her get a new car that Saturday. And she wrecks his car at a T intersection right into a guardrail head on, causes $10,000 worth of damage. Obviously, that upset her. My dad finds out that insurance would cover it, but she was distraught over that. You know, here you have my dad coming up from Connecticut to help her buy a new car. They go car shopping all afternoon. And then Mara takes his brand new car and wrecks it. She hated to disappoint my dad. So I know that she was very, very distraught over that. So is that the reason why she went to New Hampshire to clear her head? I'm not sure. And that's kind of the draw to my sister's case is there's so many different mysteries within the mystery. You know, where is Mara? What happened to her? But why was she there in the first place? What drove her to go there? She didn't tell anybody. It's just layers of mystery. So many questions. So many questions and so few answers. Yeah, I was going to say, Julie, and then trying to get at that question, you know, of why, why was she heading up there and, and sort of what was her Andrew and destination, especially with what you described with like her searches and her phone calls. It almost seemed like she didn't even know possibly were any of her friends down at UMass Amherst, were any of her friends, did anybody ever give that you know of, did anybody ever give any sort of explanation, you know, if something happened or if something was going on with her? Did anybody ever give any sort of information about that that you know of? Well, you know, I mentioned the dorm party that she went to on Saturday night. Now, I've spoken to the friend that she was there with, Kate Markopoulos, and I've asked Kate that. I said, did you notice anything that night? Did something happen at the party? And Kate said, no, she didn't notice anything. She didn't notice any change in Mars behavior whatsoever. And granted, this was 
before Mara crashed my dad's car. But at the party, it was it just seemed like a regular, you know, regular Mara, happy, you know, happy go lucky, just loving life. But there was another woman at the party or a college student who was the host of the party. And when I say party, we think it was more of a gathering because it was in the dorms. So you can't fit a whole bunch of yeah. people in a double dorm room at UMass. Her name was Sarah. And Sarah has not provided any information. She says when my dad spoke to her one time shortly after the disappearance, she claims that she was asleep the entire time at her own party. It's bizarre. And I've tried to reach out to her numerous, numerous times, and I get no response. So, you know, I wish I could speak to one of the last known people to hang out with Mara, but it's just, we're not getting anything. And I can't say why. You know, Kate will talk to me and say, you know, what she remembers, but Sarah will not. And Sarah was somebody that Mara met at one of her jobs while she was at UMass. Mara had two jobs. One was sitting at the security desk checking IDs in the dorms, and the other was working events at an art gallery. And Mara met Sarah at that art gallery. So just another bizarre layer as to why Sarah won't talk, even to my family, even to me. I can't explain it. That is so bizarre. I would almost think it could be because that was the last place that Mora was really as far as at the dorms and she might feel some guilt. Yeah, possibly. Personally, I would give as much information I could possibly give to a family that is reaching out to me and needs this information, whether it's has anything to do with knowing why she went up there or, you know, what happened. But I would think that she would come forward and say something, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know better than anybody. It's those small little details that could solve these cases. And even if you think it's insignificant, if you get a handful of pieces of potentially insignificant information, you could possibly connect that and come up with something huge, something that could solve the case. Yep. So I want to know what happened at the party. I want to know why Mara left the party, got into my dad's car when she could have just went up to her dorm room. I mean, the party was in the dorms. There was no reason for Mara to leave and get into a vehicle, especially since there was drinking. You know, they were drinking at that party. I can't say for certain whether Mara was intoxicated or, you know, I don't know how much she drank or when she stopped. I do know that when police arrived on scene for the Saturday night accident, they did not cite her. They didn't give any medical treatment. You know, and here you have a young woman uh, who gets into a, a pretty significant accident and you don't give her any medical screening or any treatment at all. And you don't administer any field sobriety testing. You know, clearly she's a college mm. student in the wee hours of the morning, probably most likely coming from a party and you do nothing. Yeah, that process does not seem right to me. It doesn't seem right. And so what happened was Mara just jumped in the tow truck and gets dropped off at my dad's motel and the car is towed. And, you know, it's just so, it's so odd. So, you know, I've had a lot of time to look back at these things. And, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, the only thing I can think of is 
she was just so upset for disappointing my dad um, and causing him additional stress. Although my dad, like I said, it was covered by insurance. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Obviously he was upset, but he knew that he didn't have to say anything because Mara was going to beat herself up over it. So was that the catalyst to make her jump in that beat up car that wasn't safe to drive and drive two and a half hours to New Hampshire on a Monday night? I don't know. Yeah. I'm kind of thinking that she was having a very bad day or a very bad weekend and um, just wanted to go and clear her head. We've all had days like that, yes. right? And it's magnified when you're that age because your lived yeah. experience is so short. You don't have a wide view of the world. You think that the smallest little thing, it's just magnified because of your age, because of your maturity or a lack of maturity, your experiences. So even things like... She was having a fight maybe with her boyfriend. That right there could be magnified in the mind of a 21-year-old. And like you said, you know, we've all had those days where we just want to get away. So I can see her wanting to do that. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I know, and especially thinking back to that age too. So I was actually born in Northern Vermont. So I was actually born in Barrie, Vermont. And I grew up until the time I was about nine or 10. And then I moved down to, you know, around this area. So Northern Vermont is sort of home for me. I know that, especially like thinking back to times when I was in my early twenties, when I was going through things every so often, I just jumped in my car and just drove home, like without telling anybody, just trying to go and trying to get back to a place where I know it was like, oh, if I just wanted to get away from everything and just go to a place where I felt I could be okay and I could sort of gather my thoughts and figure out what to do next, you know, if everything was sort of falling apart or if, you know, things were wrong. So I can completely relate with that sort of frame of mind too. Yeah. I mean, I was pretty much on the same page as that, just getting away. But I also put myself in more spot. I too made some bad choices when I was 20 and 21 and, and 22. And uh, there were things that I did that my parents didn't know about and some of them they did. And, you know, I totaled out my mother's car when I was 18. She was not happy about that. And I know I felt horrible. I felt horrible and guilty, so guilty that I did that to her. And she was the same as your father, Julie. You know, I have insurance. It's going to be covered. Yes, yeah, she was a little angry. She had every right to be a little angry with me, but she was the same way. The car has insurance. We're going to get it replaced. I told my mother's car. And um, again, she was angry, but I kind of like, I didn't want to be in her eyesight for a few days. You know, <laughs> I kind of wanted to just, if she didn't see me, then that was good. And and maybe she would stop being mad at me, but um, I can relate to what Maura was feeling. But like my dad, you know, your father loved her unconditionally. It didn't matter what she did. He still loved her unconditionally. And um, I think she was worried about what he thought, you know, how mad he was and, you know, trust issues maybe was entering her mind. And I've read so much stuff about Maura's case. And that was one thing that I always questioned was why did she go up there and alone without telling anybody? That's a huge, huge question. And I think that if you could find answers to that, I think that you would be able to find a lot more answers to a lot more of the questions that you have. So she's been missing ever since then. She has not been found. 
you have done several searches. Yeah. So it's been 19 years uh, since Mara went missing on that fateful February 9th, 2004. There have been a number of searches, both from the officials as well as from my family and supporters and advocates. Initially, when Mara first went missing, there was some tension between my family and local law enforcement because we didn't get a call that Mara was missing until Tuesday evening. So a full 36 hours had passed before anyone in my family was alerted to the fact that there was Mara's abandoned car found in New Hampshire on Monday night. So you have that window of opportunity there just completely missed because nobody was notified. And that's not hard to do because if you run the plates of the car, of the Saturn, it would have traced back directly to my dad because the car was registered for my dad. So that's an easy phone call. Why it took 36 hours to make that phone call and make that additional calls to try to get in contact with a family of somebody who is clearly out of state, you know, she had Massachusetts tags and it's the middle of February. It's freezing. It was in the low twenties that night, the cars off the side of the road, out of state plates. That's an easy thing to do as local law enforcement. And that wasn't done from that moment. You know, we were like, whoa, what is happening? What do you mean her car is in New Hampshire? Why is her car in New Hampshire? So we're all calling each other on that Tuesday, trying to figure it out. And nobody had any idea as to why she was up there. Because again, she didn't tell anybody, but we knew immediately when we got the word, something is wrong. Search now. You need to be searching now. So my dad assumed that they were we're searching because clearly this was an accident. You know, both airbags deployed. There was a crack in the windshield. There was evidence of open alcohol. There was an open box of wine in the rear seat. So you potentially have a young woman who perhaps has a head injury because the windshield's cracked and may have been drinking in February, 20 degrees out there by herself, and you don't call anybody? I mean, Uh from the jump, that's why there's been tension with my family and law enforcement. So my dad's frantic. I'm in North Carolina. My family is in, you know, the South Shore of Massachusetts. My dad says, I'm going up there to join the search. So he gets in his car late on Tuesday. It was really, really early Wednesday morning, drives up by himself and is expecting to join the search for his missing daughter. And he was the search. They hadn't searched. They hadn't searched. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you are looking for everyday items, clothes, collectibles, or a gift for that special someone, you can support us further by checking out our retail store, The Frugal Marketplace. We can be found at thefrugalmarketplace.com or search for us on eBay and Poshmark. We hold an online claim sale on Facebook Live every Monday night at 7 p.m. where you can find our latest items for sales or items at a deep discount. 
The links for our products can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15 minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.